0: Over the past centuries, the book of James has been a real challenge to uh, thinkers in the church. It's been a bit of a, a, a complex book for them. They've, they've begun to wonder how to deal with it. In fact, some of the, the, some of the writers down through the years have not had a great deal of confidence in the book of James, particularly because in some ways it seems it seems as though it speaks uh, in a different way. Uh, and with a, It seems on face value a different message to the message of grace which we see particularly in the letters. We see in the letters a letter which says we can trust in God uh, and in trusting in him and trust in and faith in him alone can we know salvation. In essence, that we believe that. Uh, and James comes along and says... Um, Faith, what about works and that for some down the years, has been a real challenge. I guess one of the things that we 've got to understand is that the Bible writes in different ways. there are different um, different genres, different kinds of writing. some kinds of writing are letters, letters from uh, one church to an, uh, one Christian leader to one church; some to many churches. And then, within those letters, as we see in the letter of James, which went to many churches, there are different styles. James is writing very much in what would have been described as a rhetorical style. In other words, rhetoric—that idea of well, argument and uh, And discourse and tr- and seeking to create pictures to prove his point is the way that James is writing that 's really important because what he 's doing is he 's writing in such a way uh, as to try to encourage the first hearers of his letter to live differently as a result of what they hear. in other words he 's using that that old approach, that rhetorical approach to try to, uh, to argue with them, I guess. You ought to live like this, and you ought to not live like this. So I suppose it might be okay for us to read that and say, well, that's fine for them, and that's great. <laughs> but James's letter is written for all of the church for all of time because it's the living word of God. And therefore it gets personal. (laughs) And it starts to say in precisely the same way for us today, don't live like that, live like that. Don't behave like that, behave like that. It's a challenge for us today as we live together. And the issue that we're going to be looking at is the issue of, um, I've called it surprising circles, and that's grabbing the idea of circles straight from Google. It's this issue of, surprising networks of relationship that's what the church is about social networking as we know it today is without doubt a global phenomenon it has changed the way we behave as human beings it has just changed the way we behave as human beings I remember as a younger child, do you remember Tomorrow? Some of you won't even know the program exists. There was a program called Tomorrow's World. And Tomorrow's World was one of those sort of, imagine what it might be like in the future. And it was, uh, it was around about the time when computers were just uh, being, being built. And it was dreaming this idea of maybe one day people would have a computer in their home. How, how amazing that would be, how incredibly sci-fi it would be if it happened that everybody had a computer in their home and now we probably, most of us, have probably got a comp- the equivalent of a computer in our pocket on our phone. Uh, and uh, I remember one particular um, article which they did, one particular episode, which, which dreamed this idea of people being able to talk to each other across the world by typing things into a computer screen. Imagine what that would be like. Wouldn't it be mind-blowing? Wouldn't it be amazing? And uh, there there were newspaper reports afterwards, after that particular episode, which was concerned about the social impact if that should happen. It is remarkable the way the world has changed. In 2003, Facebook was conceived by a Harvard student. It wasn't actually released until 2006. So we could say between 2003 and 2006, the growth was relatively small. From 2006, so let's say in 2003 there were no users. Let's say there were 100,000 being optimistic by 2006. In 2012, Facebook has gathered 845 million users worldwide. The world has changed. Recently, Google has recognised a. Pr- this is not a. This is not a talk about computer networking. It's a talk about how we behave as people. Google has recognised a weakness, and they're trying to counter it with what they call Google Circles. Those of you who've got Facebook, you'll know what it's like. You've got, if you're really popular, over a hundred friends if you're really, really popular, that might be hundreds and hundreds of friends. You can't manage hundreds and hundreds of friends. So Google's got this bright idea about let's create circles where we can prioritise relationships, put people into priority groups. Isn't that interesting? Because that that we see worked out in the world of social networking on computers is precisely what we do as people. We might know loads of people by sight. We might know hundreds of people by name, but we live by creating priority groups of relationships. Circles, if you like, which, which determine our relationships with different people. In one sense, that is very normal because we cannot manage all of the connections. That is one of the distinguishing features between us and God. Have you ever thought about that? We cannot handle multiple connections in detail in in minute detail, across thousands upon thousands upon thousands of relationships. But God can. He does. He knows every one of us intimately. And we can't do that. But he does. And so what we do is we create these circles of priority. And now I want to ask the critical question. Because this is where it starts to hit in church life, in our life together. How do we form those circles of relationship? On what decisions do we determine where people sit and in which circle do they sit? Because that is the challenge that James is bringing to the church. He's saying we do it. How do we do it? On what basis do we apportion priority of relationship? The first thing I want us to see is that the nature of us being together as a, as a people of God is right. James chapter 2 and verse 2 it says this. first few words of that verse. Suppose a man comes into your meeting. That's what it says. In other words, from the very beginning, this is one of the letters written in a short time after Jesus had been with his people, the idea, the concept of Christian people gathering together, building relationships, building communities together was a natural continuation of what god's people were to do in other words we cannot live as believers really successfully we cannot grow we cannot be nurtured we cannot we cannot grow in our faith and in our knowledge of god outside of that network of relationships we are designed we are made to be part of a people Now that is something which for some of us we find very difficult. We do. Some of us find that idea of being together and with other people and and being open and relating, Uh, some, some of us find it very difficult. Some of us find it terrifying. Some find it verging on impossible for all sorts of reasons. But what we see unfolding in this ongoing message of the Bible, as we see it opening up in the New Testament, is that it is right, and it is confirming in the New Testament that we are part of a, of a relationship group like that. You can't grow as a Christian outside of a church. You're going you're to, as the illustration is used so many times, it's like a, it's like a set of coals on a fire. that are are lit, Uh, and together they generate heat and they burn, but if one of those coals falls out onto the hearth, what does it do? (laughs) It gradually declines uh, and it goes cold. Now, just one caveat to that. I think that that illustration and that call is relevant when there is the opportunity for that to take place, that is the norm, if you like. Of course, there are cases where there are literally situations of one believer who is totally isolated away from everybody, but they are one believer in Jesus Christ, maybe in the whole of their town or the whole of their city, maybe in the whole of their state or country. Of course that can happen. And in those unique and special occasions, God will be their help. We're talking here not about the exceptions, we're talking about the norm. And the norm is that we are to be knit together. We are to be part of that. Why? Why are we to be part of it? Because the Bible is confirming through the pattern of our life as believers precisely what God intends for eternity. You see what happens if we take a whistle-stop tour through the Bible. We see what happens right at the very beginning is that man is made for relationship with, with man. Human beings are made for a relationship with each other, but as we, as we rebel against God, that is broken. Our relationship with God is broken, and we see almost the first sentences that come out of the mouth of Adam is his opposition and criticism of his wife. And we see straight away that there is an animosity and there is a brokenness in the relationship between human beings how does God work that out in the, New, in the Old Testament? He says, right, over that period of time, I am going to establish a kingdom. And that kingdom is going to be rooted in a family connection, a network, a group of people who are related through Abraham, the patriarchal father of a nation. And that nation will become an established people group, an identifiable people group, a a community of relationship, a place of belonging. You are in that network. You are in that sense of belonging. You very, very rarely see in the Old Testament the idea of an individual being spoken about. Generally speaking, it is you are part of something. You're part of this body of people. And then we see Jesus comes along. And he says what? I've come to establish my kingdom. Haven't we been talking about a kingdom right the way through the Old Testament? A kingdom of people, of belonging, of relationship... And Jesus comes along and says, I've now come to establish my kingdom. And his kingdom just breaks the doors open for the world to become part of that kingdom. A kingdom of belonging which is no longer dependent upon natural birth. You are no longer belonging to that kingdom if you are born into it physically. You now belong to that kingdom by being born into it spiritually. That's the change that takes place in the New Testament. But you are born into a kingdom. You are born into a set of connections and relationships which are reflected on an individual local basis by the church. And so James is writing to this church community And saying, you now reflect the kingdom of Jesus. Do we see that that is what we reflect? Do we see the high calling of what it is to be a part of belonging? This is not a social club on a Sunday afternoon that I can decide whether I enjoy or don't enjoy. This is a deep sense of relational commitment and belonging and knowing and caring And family relationship. A family relationship which is not closed. But as Jesus flung the doors open to his kingdom for the whole of the world. So our task is to fling the doors of our local kingdom open to all. To come and to be a part of this kingdom of Jesus represented on this local basis. Which means that we are then connected to every other kingdom of Jesus Christ in the whole of this world. Because ultimately we're connected to the kingdom that Jesus establishes for all of eternity. We are a foretaste. That is so important. That we get to grips with that and we understand the implications of how that works out. What does it mean to be a, to be a, a committed Giver to this community. What does it mean to be a confirming part of this community? A community which is established by Jesus because that is what he has ordered through his word. Do I watch my mouth? Do I watch what I say? Do I watch my relationships so that they are broad and open and warm? And, and caring? Do I have an eye for those who, who do, by personality, struggle with being part of? Am I concerned for that? We'll put it like this If there was somebody in your family who was concerned in that way, would you want to do everything that you could for them to be helped along the way? Of building relationships. Of course you would. And so wouldn't we want to do the same. In the family of Jesus Christ. A family which is not closed as a family. But a family that is open as a family. A family that is expecting. Lots and lots of new births. Lots of new births. Not new births. By physical birth although that's great, new births by spiritual birth, where people who were once not children of God are now given the right to be called children of God. And so what we see in James chapter 2, in that simple sentence, suppose a man comes into your meeting, is a continual reaffirming of the purpose of God to create communities of people. So that's the confirming. Of our belonging to this network of relationship. Called in our case here. The church. Christ church at escape. But there is a challenge. If there's a confirming to relationship. There is also a challenging of relationships let's see how it works out james chapter 2 verse 1 my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious lord jesus christ must not show favoritism must not show favoritism james is just here's the argument right here's the way it ought to be don't show favoritism now let me explain to you how that looks you get the picture of how he's talking. See the way he's using this approach. He's saying, here's the argument don't show favoritism. Now let's see what favoritism looks like. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's a really... For the context of the day, there's a description which would have just hit the first hearers right between the eyes. Why? Because pretty much all churches would have met in someone's home. That's how it worked. Uh, And so the rich people, because the vast majority of the population didn't have homes where churches could meet... The richer members of the church community would open up their homes so that all of the believers in that area could gather together. Uh, And then there would be that natural, oh, here's somebody else who's well-to-do. They live on the hillside outside of the city. They're not like all of the others who arrive from within the city. This is a person of influence. They've got a gold ring. They've got they're well dressed. There is a there is a suggestion in that gold ring, the idea of of um, being able to to help things along, if you like, somebody of authority, somebody who could stamp their ring in the in the wax and seal things and get things going. You see how incredibly relevant that would have been to today. And I think it's important that we think about how it would have been for the first hero. Because I don't think we are quite so taken in or grabbed by that particular issue. We are not in a situation in this country Where my ability to eat over the next week is dependent on somebody who is able to push their gold ring into a lump of wax. We are not shaped quite so much in that way. And therefore the prominence and importance of the rich is not quite so influential for us today. Therefore, what does it mean for us today? How might we... Show favoritism. Because that's the challenge for Christchurch Escape today. What is the way that we show favoritism? Is this a cool person? Is this somebody who is in? Are they the kind of person that is just... You know the kind of people... And this is not a criticism of those people at all. But the kind of person who just, they naturally just get a gathering of people around them, people who want to be with them. They know just what, wouldn't it be great if we were all like that? Well, no, it wouldn't actually, we'd all fight that. Uh, but if we were just, you know, we were just naturally knew what to say at just the right time and everybody, and just that person who was at the center of everything. Maybe the person who, who was just on the cutting edge of, of culture today. They were always the person who was wearing just the right gear. The person who just looked spot on. The person who was funny. The person who was youthful looking. The person, whatever it is... That's our issue, I think, for today. And when we start to think in that way, you know the person who... <laughs> I'm going to sound really critical here. The person who walks around with an, a, an, an iPad and an, a, an Apple laptop, and I haven't got a downer on Apple. But you know what I mean. Somebody who is just absolutely... person to be with. I think that is where our challenge is. Suppose somebody comes in like that and then suppose somebody else who comes in is socially really awkward. Somebody who doesn't quite know what to say at just the right time. Somebody who's far, far more likely to offend, not because they're nasty people, but because they just don't quite know how to handle social relationships. Somebody who isn't quite so open. Somebody who sits quietly. Somebody who's really unsure. Somebody who feels frightened in social networks of many people. Somebody who is far more likely to come to the door and then walk away because everybody else in there looks so much cooler than me. That is the kind of issue I think we have in today's world. I was reading an article the other day and um, it was looking at this whole issue of, of the church in today's culture, today's world. What Who who are the weak and the poor in today's world? That's the question for us to ask. Who are the weak and the poor in Western society? It would be wrong, I think, at this point, maybe to deliberately point out some of those areas. But it, it should not take much for us to be able to think ...of where those particular challenges occur. There is a massive... ...there is a massive push... ...on the media right at the moment... ...for recognition and understanding... ...for those with mental health issues. Why? Why? Because for many they feel isolated... ...and marginalized... ...and out of society kind of people who they feel as though they... The kind of... We feel maybe as though we're the kind of people who are told to sit at my feet. And James says, suppose that happens in your gathering together. Suppose that happens. that That in one gathering, in one day, two new people, four new people, eight new people... Walk in through the door and they are different people by these marked differences. And you relate to one differently to the other. What are you doing? You are judging. That's what he says. You're judging with evil thoughts. He goes on to say, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? That's what James reminds the the first hearers of. Don't you remember that the Christian faith is not something which is aimed at the rich and the famous and then allowed to trickle down to the masses? It is the reverse. It is something which has reached the ordinary people first. And if we look at the history of the growth of the church, we find that it was first taken out by ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, the marginalized and the lesser in society who changed the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were the poor in this world and God has chosen them to influence the whole world. And so rather than it trickling down from the rich and famous, it actually reached the ordinary first and then grew up through society so that by this stage, there were a few people who were rich who had a home that they would have opened up for people to gather. But don't you see, don't you realize That's what God has done. In other words, he's saying, do you see his standards, his way of doing things, are not your way of doing things. Not my way of doing things. My natural tendency, I'm sure your natural tendency, is to do the Google thing. (laughs) Where do you fit within the circle? Do you fit in a circle that I feel comfortable with? Am I allowed, or do I feel willing to jump into that circle with you and surround myself with people who fit with me, who do the things I like to do, who share the things I like to be involved with. who all I just feel comfortable with you and therefore I'll be happy if the church is filled with people like me but anybody outside of that I feel discomfort with and I will marginalize. And God says, do you know what? <laughs> I haven't behaved like that. I am the richest being in the whole of the cosmos and beyond. In all of eternity, I am. I have riches beyond measure. But I've made my friends with the poor and rebellious, with the sinners, with those who are of lesser importance than even the, even the norm of the, of the ancient world. The marginalized, they're my friends. Because God is saying, my judgment is not your judgment. And therefore, if James' letter does anything for us, it does this. It challenges the way we assess things. And it says we turn around. Now, maybe if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, I, I'm not a follower of this Jesus. I can't honestly say, uh, as we read in the first verse, that I am a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Can I suggest, suggest this to you? What we are saying here is that the Christian church should be the most unusual group of people that this world could see. And then I say sorry for all of the times when we don't deliver it effectively. Because that's how we ought to be. Our model is not what we are. Our model is what we ought to be. And therefore, we are are seeking to, to share together this afternoon. If you're looking on and thinking, this is surprising, I'm saying we are sharing what we ought to be, not necessarily what we are effective in delivering. But we're sharing not because we want to be this sort of altruistic, you know, kind and all the rest of it, We're sharing because this is what God has done for us first. So there's the challenge of relationships. It's because, ultimately, God's law levels us all. That's what we see in the next section. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Favoritism makes you a lawbreaker, according to James. Why? Because you've not loved your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor is a really wide idea. It's everybody outside of yourself. So if you've not shown love for your neighbor, you have shown favoritism and therefore you are a lawbreaker. And then he compares a lawbreaker in his illustration with people who are uh, those who commit adultery and those who murder deliberately. He deliberately says, I'm now going to categorize those who show favoritism with murderers and adulterers. Because I want to make sure that you understand as my argument unfolds that the law, God's law, levels us all. See how it works out. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, in the economy or in the, in the legal understanding that the Bible has, we are not breakers of individual laws. We are lawbreakers. That's different. We might have broken an individual law, but then that moves us into a category of lawbreaker. Uh, and it doesn't actually matter which one it is. We are lawbreakers. That's incredibly humbling. It, it, when we realize that, it, it, it actually opens the door for us to have relationship and friendship with absolutely everybody. Because suddenly we realize I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. And, and a murderer and an adulterer is a lawbreaker. And I'm in that category. And it really doesn't matter anymore how highly I think of myself because I'm a lawbreaker. That's who I am. My identity is lawbreaker. But he says, doesn't he, that you are a lawbreaker who believes in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So we are lawbreakers leveled by the law where we are guilty no matter which law it is that we break. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have broken the law. Why? Because the primary relationship is not between us. The primary relationship is our relationship with God. So because I'm a lawbreaker against God, I'm now in the category which says I'm with it with everybody else. I'm now opposed to God. And here's the great news. He goes on to say, and listen to this, Final section. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. If we think about a law... Which condemns us as lawbreakers and makes us all equal. How is it a law that gives freedom? How is it? How can the law possibly give freedom when what it's just done in the previous few verses is it's condemned us all? It's condemned everyone. How can the law give freedom? Because the law, in this sense, extends to the whole idea of the law according to God. Which includes, as part of it, the resolution that Jesus brings. Now let me explain how that works. In the Old Testament, the law, Exodus, was the picture of how we are to live that's how you are to be here's the law <laughs> and then we look at that law and we think i'm going to fail all over the place and leviticus comes in and deuteronomy comes in and and it just it gives us a whole picture of how to respond when we've broken the law it gives us it gives us a, an ability to be forgiven. And then Jesus comes along and he says all of that way of sacrifice, all of that means of sacrifice in the Old Testament which responded to the demands of the law and said here's the way for liberty, Jesus comes along and he says I fulfill all of the law there. All that Leviticus demands. We were speaking on Friday. Most most people who are starting... um, read through the Bible in a year, you're about to start failing. Around about March time you'll start failing because you'll hit Leviticus and you'll get probably about five or six chapters into Leviticus and you begin to think, what am I doing reading Leviticus? It's, it's, It's kind of, what is this about? This cycle upon cycle upon cycle upon cycle. of of sacrifice and legal systems and all of the rest of it. Listen, Leviticus tells us that we can't get close to God easily. Leviticus tells us it is not an easy thing to be forgiven. Leviticus tells us that there are demands. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I meet all of them. I meet all of them. The law that brings freedom. That's great news, isn't it? That levels us all, that allows us then to relate on a completely different basis, a basis which is not defined by my circles, a basis which is defined by Jesus' circles, the circles that He creates of people drawn into relationship with Him. It's as though I sit no longer in my Google circles. I sit in the Google circles of the living God who says, I love you. I gave myself for you. Therefore, you are all related together because I have drawn you together. You're all lawbreakers, he says. And we say, amen, we're all lawbreakers. But we also are loved by God. Everyone who trusts and believes in Jesus Christ is saved for eternity. So given that we're going to spend eternity together, we might as well start living now as though we're going to enjoy it. Surprising circles and the challenge of James.